<laughs> you guys can be seated. Yes, thank you. Yes, I think God was done with that song. <laughs> okay, so tonight we will continue in our series, Why Is This Even In Here? Uh, as we begin, by a show of hands, how many of you have ever watched any of the Sharknado movies? Okay, just talking about that, that's awesome. Okay, so um, Sharknado came out, uh, I think, um, eight years ago. Yes. Uh, the original Sharknado was somewhere about eight years ago, seven or eight years ago. And uh, there have been five sequels to Sharknado. Um, and many of you know that my son is obsessed with these films, which qualifies me for Father of the Year. Um, so after the first Sharknado film came out, it became an instant cult classic. And uh, they quickly announced that there were going to be uh, sequels to the movie. So before Sharknado 2 came out, and Eli at this time was about two, maybe three years old, um, we, uh, together with some of our friends, decided that we were going to throw a Sharknado premiere party. So we went over to my friend Caitlin's house, and she prepared shark-themed snacks. It even designed a shark-themed chandelier to hang in the room. And we decided we were just going to make a, a big deal out of this ridiculous movie. Well, we brought some toys with us because at that point, Eli had never watched a, a full movie. He was too distracted, too young, we thought, to sit down and watch a movie. He'd never done it before. So we brought a bunch of toys, put the toys on the floor, and we started watching Sharknado 2. Well, then Eli crawls up in my lap, and he sits there the entire time engrossed in this movie. Okay, he does not take his eyes off the screen the entire time. Half the time, his mouth is hanging open, and he is transfixed. And Allison and I are looking at each other like, should we be watching, letting him watch this? Like, oh, we're having this questionable moment. Well, then after that... Literally every week, at least once. Okay, sometimes it's more often, sometimes it's daily. But for the last six years, every week, at least once, there is a Sharknado movie on my TV. It is the dumbest thing in the entire world. Um, there, again, have been five sequels to the original. The, uh, the most recent one being in 2018. Um, each of these sequels gets more and more ridiculous. Now, you know the premise of the first one, that there is a tornado, a water spout, that goes out over the ocean, and this water spout only picks up uh, flesh-hungry sharks. It doesn't pick up any other sea creatures. Nothing else gets caught up in it. Just hungry sharks. And then this uh, sharknado moves over land, and these flying sharks eat people as they're flying around in the air. That's not, That's not ridiculous, ridiculous enough. enough. Um, the, sequels the sequels got even more ridiculous, ridiculous after that. 
before long, one single Sharknado was not enough. Now they needed more Sharknados to be added, so now there's multiple Sharknados, and then those multiple Sharknados had to be showing up in various places around the world. It wasn't enough to just save one city, now Sharknados are terrorizing the planet. Eventually, though, even the planet was not enough. And Finn Shepard, the uh, hero of the series, had to fight sharks in space. So he is in a space shuttle fighting sharks in space. But then that even wasn't enough. Because after that, Finn had to go back in time in a time machine to fight sharks in the past. At one point, even taking a ride on Noah's Ark. So let's ask ourselves, why is Sharknado such a huge success? Sharknado is a huge success because of how ridiculous it is. The, the pleasure in watching these movies is how far-fetched they are. How completely beyond reality they are and how overdramatic it becomes. And we ask the question, how could anyone possibly come up with this stuff? Like, who thinks of this? Um, it's fun because of how far-fetched it is. So, what happens when you find a story in the Bible that seems even more far-fetched than Sharknado? So today, I'm going to stretch you guys a little bit. Um, I'm going to take us to a place in Scripture where pretty much every 21st century Christian would avoid at all costs. Uh, why? Because that's what we're doing this whole series. Um, and I'll warn you from the beginning that if you are someone like me who is a natural-born skeptic, um, someone who tends heavily toward reason and science, uh, this is probably going to be a very difficult passage for you. Um, admittedly, it's a difficult passage for most people. Um, from the very beginning, I just want to throw that out there as a disclaimer, that if, uh, if you have a, a mind that tends toward only the logical, uh, this is one that might make you scratch your head. So, uh, we're going to be looking at Joshua chapter 10, verses 1 through 15. Now, before we jump into the text, let's review briefly our four principles of scriptural interpretation. Anybody remember any of them? Yes, sir. Genre matters. Thank you, sir. Very good. That means that in the Bible, there are various types of literary genres, poetry, narrative, law, etc. We have to note what kind of genre we are reading. What else? Anyone? Oh, look, it's right there. <laughs> Thank you for putting it up on the screen. Yes, number one, the Bible must be read as an ancient document. Before we can insert our meaning into it, we first have to understand how it was written by the original author to the original audience at the original time. And once we've determined that ancient uh, original meaning, then we can extrapolate the eternal meaning from there. Number two, Number two, we have to note the, the difference between description and prescription. Certain passages in the Bible describe events that happened. 
other passages in the Bible, sometimes the same ones, tell us what to do. So just because something is recorded in the Bible doesn't mean it's recommended in the Bible. Just because the Bible uh, says that something happened doesn't mean it's saying necessarily go and do likewise. So we have to know uh, which we are reading. And then finally, number four, Scripture interprets Scripture. So anytime we come to a passage that we're trying to understand, we have to read it in light of the rest of the Scriptures immediately surrounding it and within the rest of of the Bible. So, with those things in mind, let's turn now to Joshua chapter 10, verses 1 through 15. As soon as Adonai Zedek, king of Jerusalem, heard how Joshua had captured Ai and had devoted it to destruction, doing to Ai and its king as he had done to Jericho and its king, and how the inhabitants of Gibeon had made peace with Israel and were among them, they feared greatly because Gibeon was a great city, like one of the royal cities, because it was greater than Ai, and all its men were warriors. So Adonai Zedek, king of Jerusalem, sent to Hoham, king of Hebron, and to Piram, king of Jarmuth, and to Japhia, king of Lachish, and to Debir, king of Eglon, saying, Come up to me and help me, and let us strike Gibeon, for it has made peace with Joshua and with the people of Israel. And the five kings of the Amorites, the king of Jerusalem, the king of Hebron, the king of Jarmuth, the king of Lachish, and the king of Eglon, gathered their forces and went up with all of their armies and encamped against Gibeon and made war against it. And the men of Gibeon sent to Joshua at the camp in Gilgal, saying, Do not relax your hand from your servants. Come up to us quickly and save us. Help us. For all the kings of the Amorites who dwell in the hill country are gathered against us. So Joshua went up from Gilgal, he and all the people of war with him, and all the mighty men of valor. And the Lord said to Joshua, Do not fear them, for I have given them into your hands. Not a man of them shall stand before you. So Joshua came upon them suddenly, having marched up all night from Gilgal. And the Lord threw them into a panic before Israel, who struck them with a great blow at Gibeon, and chased them by the way of the ascent of Beth Horon, and struck them as far as Azekah and Makeda. And as they fled before Israel, while they were going down the ascent of Beth Horon, the Lord threw down large stones from heaven on them, as far as Azekah, and they died. There were more who died because of the hailstones than the sons of Israel killed with the sword. At that time, Joshua spoke to the Lord in the day when the Lord gave the Amorites over to the sons of Israel. And he said in the sight of Israel, Sun, stand still at Gibeon, and moon in the valley of Ajalon. And the sun stood still, and the moon stopped until the nations took vengeance on their enemies. Is this not written in the book of Jasher? The sun stopped in the midst of heaven and did not hurry to set for about a whole day. There has been no day like it before or since, and the Lord heeded the voice of a man, and the Lord fought for Israel. So Joshua returned, and all Israel with him, to the camp of Gilgal. So, raise your hand if you've ever heard someone say that they cannot believe in the Bible because the Bible contains scientifically impossible events. Anybody ever heard that? 
um, or that there are things in the Bible that defy logic and reason, right? Things like a worldwide flood or a man living in the belly of a fish for three days or how about the sun standing still in the sky? Let's be upfront uh, here and admit, even the way that this hits us, people who are devoted Christians, even our first response when we read a passage like this is to go, but did it really though? Did the sun really stand still in the sky? And we begin to think to ourselves, how am I going to sell this one to my neighbor without them looking at me like I have lost my ever-loving mind? When I tell them, oh yeah, there was this day where the sun stood still in the sky for a full day. Those are some of the questions that we are going to try to answer this evening. So let's begin by setting some context for this passage. This takes place shortly after the Battle of Jericho, which all of us are familiar with. The Israelites march around the city and the walls come tumbling down. Another crazy miracle. The Israelites have now entered into the promised land of Canaan, and they've begun to embark on the conquest that God commanded them to, to subdue the nations. A couple of chapters before this, in chapter 8, um, after they've already defeated Jericho, the Israelites come upon the city of Ai. And initially, they lose to Ai because of some sin issues in chapter 7. But then they regroup, they repent, and they uh, rout the city of Ai. And so now, word is beginning to spread among the people that the Israelites mean business. So then the Gibeonites, this group of people, rather than having Israel come and take over them, they decide, let's make a peace treaty with Israel. Now, ironically, we learn in, in the passage that we read today that the Gibeonites are a mighty city full of mighty warriors. But even then, they're like, no, 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 we're not going to mess around with this. So they make a peace treaty with, with Israel. So we're going to talk a little bit later about why. They actually had to deceive the Israelites in order to make a treaty with them. Um, they show up dressed like a bunch of weaklings saying, We can't help it. Will you please make peace with us? And they do. And so Israel swears not to harm them and to aid them whenever they are in need. Um, so then the five Ammonite kings uh, that are surrounding them get together and they say, we've got to do something about this. Gibeon has gone behind our backs and they've made a peace treaty with Israel. So they've left us out in the cold. We need to go and attack them, show them who's boss. So these five cities form a coalition and they set up siege works against Gibeon. And at this point, the Gibeonites send word to Joshua saying, hey, do you remember our treaty? Come and help us out. So Joshua and the Israelite army march all night long to wage war against this Ammonite coalition. And then we get to what could be argued as the most far-fetched miracle in the Bible. The sun stands still. How do we properly interpret a passage like this? Well, let's begin with uh, ancient principle, or with scriptural principle number one, and that is that we must read the Bible as an ancient document. Um, as such, here is something that we must note. Now, Allison, you can put the next slide up. The Bible uses the language of observation. In other words, the Bible typically describes things as they appear visually to the natural eye. 
not as a scientific process. Now, that's not to say that the Bible is unscientific or that the Bible is anti-science, meaning that it goes against science. Faith and science can very closely be reconciled, and that's part of what we're talking about today. Um, But the Bible wasn't written primarily for the purpose of explaining scientific processes. It was mainly written to reveal the person and work of God. So, the ancient authors record these events as they are observing them in real time. So, using the language of observation, Joshua says that the sun stands still. Now, with a greater understanding of the scientific process here thousands of years later, we, would, we know that in order for this event to take place, it's not the sun that would need to stand still. It would actually be the earth that would need to stand still. But visually, of course, the sun appears to move across the sky. And so Joshua asked for the sun to stop moving across the sky. This is not a scientific statement, it is a statement of observation. What he is asking for is for the day to be extended. And we read this um, in uh, verse uh, 13. The sun stood still and the moon stopped. The nation took vengeance on their enemies. Verse 14, it did not hurry to set for about a whole day. So, he is asking God to give them a longer day in order to defeat the enemy before the enemy has a chance to regroup. Joshua and the Israelites have marched up on them, and they have the element of surprise. And so, before the Ammonites can, can regroup, the victory needed to be won, um, or they would lose their advantage. And then they would use their superior numbers to fight back. So, the text tells us, the sun stopped and the day was twice as long. So, let's talk for just a moment about some of the scientific issues with this. Scientifically speaking, what would happen if the earth suddenly stopped spinning on its axis? Yes. That is true, yes. Half the world would be cold, the other half would be hot, because it wouldn't be facing the sun. Thank you, sir. One of the greatest things that would happen if the Earth all of a sudden stopped spinning on its axis is that everything would fly off. The Earth spins on its axis at approximately 1,000 miles per hour, and it is the force of gravity that keeps everything held on the ground as it should be, or in its place. And so if all of a sudden that gravitational force was stopped, and we, we went from spinning at 1,000 miles per hour to all of a sudden zero, it would just be like if you were driving in your car at 100 miles an hour and stopped all of a sudden. Everything would move forward. You would fly through the windshield. Everything on Earth would fly off. The oceans would all empty out. Everything left on Earth would die. If this took place in that way, everything and everyone would die. Now, even if we say, well, no, that's not really what it is, Joshua actually was talking about the sun. If the sun all of a sudden stopped, 
if we interpret this passage as saying that the earth kept spinning, but the sun moved in order to compensate. So the sun moved from its fixed place in the galaxy to continue around with the earth. Well, then that would cause devastating effects all over the galaxy. It wouldn't just be the earth affected at that point. Every uh, part of the solar system would be destroyed. So, because of that, there are a few different ways that people have interpreted this passage. Uh, the first is to take this in a poetic sense. Um, we see that in the uh, second part of verse 13, where it says, Is this not written in the book of Jasher? Well, the book of Jasher was a book of poems and songs. So, the poetic interpretation says, well, Joshua is merely being poetic here. He is using the language of hyperbole to talk about some element of the battle. But is that a satisfactory answer? I would say no. There, there's some issues with taking this poetic interpretation. Uh, number one, even if we take the quote from Jasher as being poetic in verse uh, 12 and 13, where in most of your Bibles it's probably bracketed there as a quote, even if we say, well, the book of Jasher is being poetic, Clearly, in the second half of verse 13 and the uh, first part of verse 14, it's not being poetic. So, there's a, a, a summary verse after the quote. The quote comes from Jasher, and then the summary in the second half of verse 13, the sun stopped in the midst of heaven and did not hurry to set for about a whole day. There's been no day like it before or since, and the Lord heeded the voice of a man, and the Lord fought for Israel. This goes to the scriptural interpretation uh, law that genre matters. You can't just switch genres back and forth at the drop of a hat and then drop back. The rest of this entire book is narrative. This entire story is narrative. So we can't just say, well, this is the genre of poetry for just one part of one verse. If we did that, we'd have to change the rest of the book as well. We'd have to ask, well, was it poetic when it said that the walls came tumbling down at Jericho? Was it being poetic when it said that the Red Sea was split so that the Israelites crossed? Was it being poetic when it talked about the renewal of the covenant? On and on and on. The truth is, we have to stick to a genre. Pick a genre and stick to it. And the genre here is narrative. So I don't think we can take this poetically. Um, a second interpretation that, to me, is surprisingly widespread when you look at various commentaries and ways that people have answered this passage is to say that the event that is recorded here is actually an eclipse. And again, because the Israelites don't have the modern scientific knowledge that we have, um, they just recorded things from their perspective uh, and confused as they might be, they were just talking about an eclipse. And upon seeing this eclipse, they are amazed. But, as you can imagine, there are problems with that view as well. One of them being, this absolutely wouldn't have been the first time that they saw an eclipse. Eclipses are regular occurrences. Uh, these are not once-in-a-lifetime or once-in-a-generation occurrences that take place. So they would never say something like, never has there been a day like it before or since. 
because eclipses happen every so often. The second issue is that eclipses only last for a matter of minutes, not a matter of hours. And so when the sun and the moon cross paths, it's over, almost like that. So I don't think that we can look at this and say, well, we're talking about a, uh, an eclipse. The third way that people have tried to interpret this is by calling this a miracle of refraction. And what that view states is that um, the laws of nature continue to function in the same way that they had before. But what God did was he created a miracle of local light. In other words, as the sun itself actually went down, God himself was up in the sky as the light providing uh, light to the Israelites. So God stood in the place of the sun and extended visually in that one region uh, daylight for the rest of the day. Now, so far, that's the most plausible explanation. After all, we know in Scripture that God is light, that He is the Father of lights. We know that in heaven there will be no need for the sun, because God Himself will give it light. But as we take it in the context of the rest of the Old Testament, and in especially uh, the conquest of Israel into Canaan, um, in every miraculous event leading up to this one, from Egypt onward, every time that God has appeared in a supernatural way, it's been specifically noted. When God appeared as a burning bush, it's clear that it is God as the burning bush. When God appeared as a pillar of fire, it's clear that God appeared as a pillar of fire. When God came as a violent storm at the top of Mount Sinai, it's clearly noted that God would be that storm. And so it's odd that this event would be the only one in which God is being light, but not being pointed to specifically as being the light. So that leaves us with only one interpretation remaining, and that is literal. To take this passage as being what it actually claims, that God made the day last a full day longer. Now we've already talked about some of the catastrophic effects of such an action. But is that really enough to defeat this, to this interpretation? My view is no. Now again, like I said at the beginning, this will stretch you. It's not hard to see why. Trying to get a skeptic to believe that God stopped the cosmos from spinning for a full day is kind of a hard sell, right? It is a bit outlandish. So, let's talk about another important principle to apply to the entire Bible, which will also serve as point number one. Take notes here is point number one. Eli loves taking notes. Miracles must be understood as coming from the God of Genesis 1. Miracles must be understood as coming from the God of Genesis 1. Like I said, there's a lot of people who have trouble believing the Bible because there are supernatural events recorded all throughout Scripture. But we need to be completely honest. If what you struggle most with is miraculous supernatural events, you should never get past page 1 of the Bible. If your hang-up is on the supernatural, page 1 should stop you from going any further. On page 1, 
What you have is an all-powerful God creating everything out of nothing. The entire universe, all of its contents, all of its life, come as a result of God simply speaking. Let there be, and it was. This creation ex nihilo, creation out of nothing, is the most powerful physical event in all of history. Nothing even comes close. All of the matter in the universe, all of the vast expanses of space, every intricate part of the solar system, every planet, every star, every heavenly body, all of the life represented and the intricate systems that make life possible, boom, there, all of a sudden, out of nothing, simply because God spoke it. Any time the question of miracles comes up in conversation, we have to start right here. We've got to figure out what's your paradigm. Okay, where, where are you starting from as we examine this question? Everything has to start with either you have a God who does this on page one, or you don't. This is using the principle of Scripture interpreting Scripture. When someone says something like, you know, I really find it hard to believe that a guy was swallowed by a fish and lived for three days, your first question should be, okay, what do you believe about the beginning of the universe? Let's start there. Because if you can swallow page one, you can easily swallow the rest of the book. There was nothing even close to as fantastical as Genesis chapter 1. Nothing is even in the same league. No physical miracle that God performs in the rest of the Bible can even compare with that one. If there is truly a God that is powerful enough to create an entire universe with just a few sentences, how hard would it be for that God to raise someone from the dead? It wouldn't be hard at all. It would be easy. If he's the author and sustainer of life, one life is child's play. Think about it like this. Let's say I came to you and told you, I am strong enough to lift a tractor trailer above my head. You would laugh. You would say to me, Sway, it's obvious visually that you have been working out and have tremendous muscle, but no one can do that. But then let's say I demonstrated to you that I actually could. I said, follow me outside. There's a tractor trailer parked in the parking lot. And then I proceeded to pick up the tractor trailer above my head. You would be A, amazed, B, looking for the trick of how I made it possible. So let's say I could prove beyond a shadow of a doubt that I, it was actually me strong enough to lift the tractor trailer. Then let's say I followed that up with, now let me tell you something else I can do. I can lift a matchbox car. You look at me and go, uh, yeah, obviously. You can lift a tractor trailer. I can lift a matchbox car. Of course you can. That is what we have in Scripture. God lifting a tractor trailer above his head in Genesis 1. Everything after that is lifting matchbox cars. We take the God of Genesis 1. We can take the God of Joshua chapter 10. If God is that powerful to create the cosmos, is he powerful enough to hit pause on the cosmos? 
I would say that he is. Oh, but, but what about all the national laws? Well, again, every single miracle in the Bible is a suspension or a superseding of natural laws. Every single one of them. Uh, you know the law of the conservation of matter. It states that matter can neither be created nor destroyed. The same amount of matter will exist no matter what. Well, what do you think happened at creation? There was no matter, and God made all of it. Or what do you think happened when Jesus turned a kid's happy meal into an all-you-can-eat buffet for thousands of people? That was a creation of matter. The God of Genesis 1, who wrote every single one of these natural laws, is powerful enough to intervene in any of them or supersede over them. Now, here's the thing about this passage. We get so caught up in the sun standing still that it's easy for us to overlook the fact that that's not even the first miracle that's in this chapter. That's the second miracle in this chapter. Look, after all, at the cosmic miracle in verses 10 through 11. At this point, Israel has come upon the Ammonites. The Ammonites are in confusion. They're fleeing. They're running away. Verse 10. The Lord threw them into a panic before Israel, who struck them with a great blow at Gibeon, and chased them by the way of ascent of Beth Horon, and struck them as far as Azekah and Machedah. And as they fled before Israel, while they were going down the ascent of Beth Horon, the Lord threw down large stones from heaven on them, as far as Azekah, and they died. There were more who died because of the hailstones than the sons of Israel killed with the sword. Do you know what we have here? We have Ammonites seeking missiles. As these armies are all clustered together, running in one direction, Israelites with sword in hand, in hand-to-hand combat with Ammonites, all of a sudden, hailstones from heaven start coming down and killing just Ammonites. Okay, imagine that you are there in that moment seeing this happen before your eyes. As an Israelite, you see the hailstones. You're likely putting up your shield so that they don't hit you. But then you start to realize none of your boys are getting hit. Only the bad guys are. After a few minutes, you realize what's happening, and you would be so amazed that you might just put your sword down and watch, right? The Lord performs this cosmic miracle of, as I said, Ammonite-seeking missiles. And we'll come back to the Ammonite-seeking missiles a little bit later on. But again, it brings us back to a miracle like this is only possible if the God of Genesis 1 exists. And if the God of Genesis 1 exists, this is child's play. But why is this even in here? Point number two, Uh, it is too dope not to record. This is not a point that I will elaborate on very much because it requires very little elaboration. A much better question is, why wouldn't you record something like this? Why wouldn't it be in here? This is an ultimate cosmic flex. Wouldn't you record this if you were God? And if you're the Israelites, listing out your top ten as you sit around the campfire, talking about all the amazing things that God did, wouldn't this story be on here? 
Wouldn't you be sitting around the campfire saying, Oh yeah, do you remember when God made the sun stand still? That was dope. The Ammonites were like, what? And then they died, and we won. It would be crazy to not record this. So in answering the question of why is this even in here, we should be asking, why wouldn't it be? But that brings us to point number three. This event is a direct theological shot fired at the ancient world. Every single one of the miracles in the Bible served specific purposes. God didn't just perform miracles just because, with absolutely no reason behind them. Every single one of the miracles he performs is meant to accomplish something. And in every case, he is revealing something about himself to the world. Every single miracle reveals something about the character of God and the message of the gospel to the world. Whenever we find a prophet performing a miracle in the Old Testament, it was to demonstrate, to prove that he actually was the spokesperson for God. A miracle served to legitimize both the messenger and the message. When Jesus and his disciples performed miracles, it was to demonstrate that the kingdom of God was actually at hand, and that the message that they were preaching, the message of the gospel, was really true. And so miracles always were connected to the spreading of the truth about the nature of God. Miracles always come with a message. They are never isolated events just by themselves. So, what is the message of Joshua chapter 10? What is God revealing about himself to the ancient world? He is revealing that he is the only God. That he alone is to be feared and worshipped. He's revealing that every other conception of God, every other deity, is completely subject to him. Why is that? Well, it's because of who and what was often worshipped in the ancient world. In many ancient cultures, including the Ammonites, their chief god was the sun god. Every single nation, when they would go into battle, would seek the favor of their gods in battle. And so, the Ammonites would have sought the favor of their sun god as they go into battle. And this event is a decisive shot fired right at those gods. The Ammonites would have said in this situation, Oh no. The Israelite God even controls the sun. He is more powerful than our God. This is a clear way of demonstrating to the ancient world that there's only one excuse me, there's only one God, the God of Israel. Did you know that this is also true of the plagues performed in Egypt? Every single one of the plagues in Egypt corresponds to an Egyptian God. Uh, the Egyptians worshipped the Nile River, and there was a god of the Nile River. And so what did God do? He turned the Nile into blood. Uh, the Egyptians worshipped a goddess of fertility, whose head was the head of a frog. So God overran Egypt with frogs, and then removed them all immediately. 
They worship the God of the earth. And so from the earth, God sent a plague of gnats. The Egyptians worshipped a creation God that had the head of a fly. And so what did God do? He sent a bunch of flies. Hathor, the Egyptian God of love and protection, had the head of a cow. And so what did God do? He killed all of the livestock and the cattle. In the face of the Egyptian goddess of medicine, God inflicted the people with boils and sores. There was also a goddess of the sky, but that goddess of the sky couldn't stop God from raining down destructive hailstones on Egypt. To the god of storms, God sent his own storm filled with locusts. And then we come to Ra. Ra is the chief of the Egyptian gods. Ra is the sun god, more powerful in the eyes of the Egyptian than any other deity. And so what does Yahweh do? He turns out the lights. For a period of three days, there is complete darkness. As the Egyptians do what? Cry out to Ra to give them deliverance. And deliverance never comes. Because the Egyptians learn that God of Israel is in charge of the sun. And Ra is completely impotent. Finally, you have Pharaoh. Now, the pharaohs in Egypt were worshipped as gods themselves. The pharaoh would be viewed as a reigning deity among the people. The, the pharaoh was viewed as being a son of Ra in the flesh. And so, what does God do? He brings pharaoh to his knees and takes his son. So, by the end of this ordeal, every major deity worshipped in Egypt will be left with egg on their face. Because God has punked every single one of them. It is a powerful shot fired at every false god. And that is exactly what we have taking place in this event against the Ammonite coalition. From this, word would spread far and wide, the Israelite God rules over all. And that is what led the Gibeonites, that we talked about earlier, to make a treaty with Israel in the first place. In spite of the fact that this was a mighty city filled, it says, with warriors. It says, Gibeon was a great city, like one of the royal cities, greater than Ai, and all its men were warriors. But what did the Gibeonites do? The Gibeonites look at each other and like, we are not going to mess around with this. <laughs> we got to make sure we're on the right side of this, and uh, our gods don't stand a chance against Elohim. We saw it in Egypt. All of us heard it. Oh, Jericho? Yeah, we saw what happened there too. Uh, we're we're going to be on the right side here. Israel, take us in. We're with you guys. Because of what it said about God, this miracle is intended to send a ripple of fear through the ancient world. And that is what it accomplished. Point number four, this miracle was meant to remind Israel who to trust. Whereas this miracle was intended to say to the ancient world, their God reigns over all, it was meant to say to Israel, God is the one who fights our battles for us. Our victory comes from God. 
So going back for a moment to those uh, Ammonite-seeking missiles that we saw in verse 11. Verse 11 tells us specifically that there were more Ammonites who died from these hailstones than Ammonites who died from Israelite swords. So body count favors God over Israel. And so this is a message straight to Israel, not only to show off his own power to his people, but this is a very specific message to the people themselves, that they had better not rely on themselves for any kind of victory. This is a theme that we see repeated throughout the miracles of the conquest in Canaan. That God is the one who fights every battle and wins. After all, at Jericho, the Israelites didn't even pick up a weapon. God told them to do something completely insane. Just walk in circles and then scream when I tell you. They obeyed, and what happened? The walls come tumbling down. Here in this case, God says, just chase them. Just run at them. I'll take care of them with hailstones from heaven. There is no sensible thinking Israelite that could walk away from these events and go, We did it! We are awesome! I mean, did you see us in battle out there? There were so many Ammonites and uh, our swords. Boy, they really won the victory today. No, at the press conference afterwards, the Israelites would have been like, uh, yeah, we got to thank uh, Lord and Savior Jesus Christ on this one. Uh, we were kind of on the sidelines the whole time, and uh, he just took the ball and ran. Got every touchdown. So, Jesus is the victory. Good night. There is no way that an Israelite could have pride in their own ability if they were thinking straight. They would have seen that victory and salvation come only from the Lord. And this is one of the eternal principles for us as well. That's one of the things that we should take out of this. That far too often, we place a whole lot of faith in ourselves. Far too often, we give ourselves a whole lot of credit. Far too often, when we look at the good things in our lives, we say, I did that. I accomplished that. I worked hard. I was smart. I was wise. I was a good steward of my resources, and I made that happen. Instead of saying, every good thing comes from the Lord. And even the things that I did, he empowered me to do so. After all, he put the breath in my lungs that I could even breathe in the first place. All credit goes to him. But that's not often how we live. We like to take at least a little bit of the credit for ourselves. We need to place all of our faith in the God who made the sun stand still and fires enemy-seeking missiles from heaven. Number five. This miracle is a clear foreshadowing to Jesus. Now, when we look at the events of this story, God controlling these storms and God controlling nature itself, there's a story in the New Testament that we should call to mind. Um, I didn't put this on the PowerPoint, but this story comes from Mark chapter 4, verses 35 through 41. In this particular story in Mark, Jesus and his disciples are on a boat, and Jesus calms the storm. On that day, when evening had come, he said to them, let us go across to the other side. 
And leaving the crowd, they took him with them in the boat, just as he was, and other boats were with him. And a great windstorm arose, and waves were breaking into the boat, so that the boat was already filling. But he was in the stern, asleep on the cushion. And they woke him up and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we're perishing? And he awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. And he said to them, Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, Who is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? Who is this that nature listens to his voice? Who is this that can look up in the sky and say, Stop! And nature obeys. This, this is a direct foreshadowing where Jesus says to nature the very same words, be still. In that passage, Jesus is showing his disciples that he is the God of Joshua chapter 10. When they marvel and they say, who is this that even nature obeys him? We only know of one person that can control nature like that, that we've read about, God. And Jesus' point there is, exactly. So this story is setting the stage for Jesus to demonstrate that he is the God over all nature. I, I shared with you before in uh, this series that all of scripture points forward to Jesus. Everything in the Old Testament is pointing right at him. So this is revealing who the Messiah would one day be. That is the primary reason why this is in here. And before we end, I want to briefly uh, address uh, an earlier question. And that is, if God is capable of performing miracles like this, why doesn't he perform miracles like that today? And while this is by no means an exhaustive answer, um, more like just a few bullet point thoughts, I hope that it will give us some perspective. First, we have to note that God still does perform miracles. Okay, we can't swim, swing the pendulum too far in the other side. We can't say, there are no more miracles today. God does perform miracles today. There are miracles that I'm sure any of us could tell stories about, where people are miraculously healed, or needs are miraculously provided for. So God absolutely does perform miracles today. But when we look at the, uh, the history of Scripture, sometimes we start to believe that miracles were happening just all the time. All the time, especially in the Old Testament. But what we find in between these stories of miracles uh, are often hundreds of years. And if we read some of the, uh, the prophets and, and the times where, especially the minor prophets are prophesying, what we find the Israelites themselves saying is, where is the God of old? Where are the miracles that we heard our forefathers talking about? These miraculous events are uncommon, even in the story of Scripture. Now it's true that Jesus was performing consistently Consistently, a lot of miracles. But it's also true that Jesus didn't perform every single miracle that he could. There were a lot of people that he did not heal. There were a lot of diseases that he did not cure. There were a lot of people that he didn't raise from the dead. The miracles that he did perform, again, always were meant to establish the message. 
the, mir- the miracles that he performed to establish the gospel. And so even Jesus was selective about the miracles that he performed. Even people at the time were saying to him, why aren't you performing the miracle that we know you're capable of? It's because there was a greater purpose. Now, for our time today, here's what we need to realize. There is no greater miracle than the salvation and the indwelling of the Holy Spirit that is in us. We have been brought from eternal death to eternal life. How dare we be myopic enough to think that God doesn't perform miracles? You're looking at one. I was destined for hell with no good in me whatsoever and no way of earning my way to God. And yet, God, because of his own grace, brought me from death to life. I'm a walking miracle. And if you have trusted Christ, so are you. And then there's the fact that the Holy Spirit dwells within us. We are in a unique place in terms of the history of God's revelation. Because all throughout the Old Testament, God did not dwell in that way. I often say that when we think about the story of Moses on Mount Sinai, as God appears in this thunderstorm and earthquake, that powerful God, is now the God that lives in us. And I've said before that I look forward to going to heaven and and meeting Moses and saying, Mo, what was it like meeting God up on the mountain? But I think that he would look at me and say, what was it like having that God in you every single day? Tell me what that was like. That's the miracle that we walk in every single day. The gospel message is already established, and it is centered upon Christ. And so the need for these miracles is no longer the same. This also relates to another question that we have. Why aren't there more Bible books at? Why did it stop in the first century? Well, the reason is because we have all that we need. Everything in the Old Testament was pointing forward to Jesus, and everything written in the New Testament was pointing back at him. Now all we're waiting for is the second coming. And so all that needs to be said has been said. And every miracle that needs to be performed has been performed. In the meantime, what we look forward to is not an earthly miracle, but rather the return of Jesus and the establishing of his eternal kingdom. Faith should not rest in the miracle itself, but in the the God who performs the miracle. We're not looking for a genie. Jesus said in John 6:26, Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. At this point, there are people who have been fed by the miracles of Jesus, and they're like, well, what else you got? And Jesus looks at them and says, you just want free bread. Go away. We have to ask ourselves what we love more. A God who loves us and offers us eternity in his presence, or free bread that comes from temporary miracles. See, in Joshua chapter 10, the sun may have stood still, but what happened after that? Everything went back to normal. The next day, and the next day, normal days. See, every miracle that God performed on earth was a temporary suspension of the natural order, which then resumed back to the natural order soon after. 
people that, people that he rose from the dead, the dead guess, what, guess what happened to them? They died. Again. People whose sickness, who sicknesses he had healed, guess what happened to them? At some point, they got a different sickness. Or old age. Or they got hit by the ancient version of a bus. Every one of them died. You see, these things were temporary signs that were meant to point us to eternal hope. Amazing signs, no doubt. Signs are always intended to point to something greater. Not the sun standing still, but the God who's capable of making it do so. So at the end, it turns out, the story isn't quite as far-fetched as Sharknado, but it is way cooler. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for the truth of your word. Thank you for leading us in, in, in truth. And God, I pray that our faith is bigger than it was before, that our perspective is wider than it was before. Lord, that our belief in you is more intimate. God, I pray that you would direct our hearts to the giver rather than to the gift. God, I pray that if there's anyone who is listening to the podcast or watching online that has never experienced the greatest miracle, the miracle of being brought from death to life, Lord, I pray that you would perform that miracle today, that there would be true surrender and trust. God, I pray that as we sing our final song, Lord, that our hearts would respond to the way that you love us so marvelously. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You can stand and we will close in worship.